0: He was 10% push and 90% accident. Or at least that's what he told the papers when they questioned him about how he was able to become so successful. He was known for walking around town, hounding out rulers. He abolished horse racing in New Jersey and gambling in 1894. And he was a self-made man from the humblest of beginnings. He was also arrested twice. It's Leslie Sharonbeck. you're listening to Heirloom Historical, and on today's episode, we're talking about my hometown Asbury Park's founder, the Brush Daddy himself, James A. Bradley. So for those of you that have visited Asbury Park, New Jersey, the city by the sea, you'll note that it was founded in 1871, and as you're cruising along Kingsley Avenue and in between Ocean and Kingsley, There's a beautiful park. Uh, This was once known as Atlantic Square. It has a beautiful bronze statue that exists right in front of Convention Hall that is a heroic size replica of James A. Bradley, the founder of Asbury Park. And this statue actually was dedicated on the 50th anniversary's founding of Asbury Park in 1921. Um, And very sadly, it was erected just After Asbury's passing. He passed at the age of 91 years old in 1921. But who is this guy that founded this city by the sea? And what lasting legacy and impact can we see in the town of Asbury, what he has done for us here historically? A little bit about Bradley. He came from very humble beginnings. Uh, He was born in 1830 on Valentine's Day. And his birthplace was actually in Staten Island. It was in the Rossville section of Staten Island. That's the South Shore for all of my Staten Island natives that might be listening. He was born in this place called the Old Blazing Star Inn. And it was essentially a hostel. Now, ironically, Francis Asbury, who Bradley idolized, actually stayed there as well. He was a member of the Methodist Church. Bradley was the son of a farmer. Um, His father was Irish, and his mom was English. And by the age of four, Bradley was left fatherless. His father had passed away, some historians think, due to uh, alcoholism. His mother remarried, and when she did, she married a gentleman by the name of Charles Smith, young Jim, who is now going by the name of Jim Smith, and his mother moved to New York City. They moved to an area of New York known as Cherry Street. And like many people, the family was moving into New York City on the advent of the Civil War. So they were moving in this antebellum period in which the city became the place that they wanted that that was the place to be. As he was growing up, our friend Young Jim here grew up and became a Bowery boy in an area that was basically the middle class playground of New York. And he, like all of the Bowery boys, um, engaged in some very unscrupulous behavior. Uh, young Bradley, Young Jim used to drink wine and he used to love to go to minstrel so- shows, which were a part of New York City's culture at the period. However, unlike real Bowery boys, he was not a part of the firemen's units, or any of the mechanics. If you're familiar with those old Bowery Boys movies, Bradley wasn't fitting that script. But the interesting part is that his mother sees that young Jim is steering a little bit off of the rails. And so she actually ships him to a farm in New Jersey, out in Bloomfield, where he was tasked with milking cows and other farm-like chores, collecting eggs and things like that. Young Jim would stand for none of this. He actually ran away twice, both times he comes back to New York City. It's finally on that second time that his mother says, Okay, okay, we'll let you stay, but you have to straighten up your ways. And so, of course, young Jim, Bradley, agrees into allowing his mother to kind of show him the way, so to speak, but he was still a little bit of a troublemaker. He returns back to the Bowery. And it's two instances that make our young Jim Smith Bradley see the light. So the first is in hanging out with those boys on the Bowery, one of his friends in the midst of a crowd asks people in the crowd if they would want to fight. Put up your dukes, I guess, as they said in in the old days. And so young Jim, thinking that uh, his friend was intoxicated and that he would be able to run away and not really put up much of a fight, basically embarrass the guy, he challenges him. And so young Jim takes off. He runs down the street, and lo and behold, he was beaten. And so it was after that instance of a Bowery boy like violence, he decides to go out and get a job. He was not the brush daddy yet. He goes to work in the Bowery for about four weeks, earning $1 a week at a brass factory, brass foundries as they were known back then. And his task was to watch a lead pot. And after about four weeks of doing that, young Bradley decides This is not the way to go. Um, This is not the job for me, but he's kind of lost. And at that point, tragedy hits. His sister very tragically passes away. And after her death and after a failed job in the brass foundry, Bradley decides that he is going to see the light of Methodism. He is going to work hard. He is going to basically become a self-made man. And he takes this opportunity by walking into the shop of Francis Fernald, who was a brushmaker in New York City at the time. He really works very hard at becoming a great brushmaker. Francis Fernald kind of sees what a great apprentice young Bradley is and so he really takes him under his wing and so if you're familiar with any of these old gilded age type novels written by Horatio Alger there's a whole bunch of them from farm boy to senator is one um, ragged dick is another Bradley really becomes like one of these main characters he works very hard he pays off um, whatever debts he has he saves up his own money Of course, he falls in love at the time. He ends up getting married to Helen Packard. Uh, Helen was a Rutgers student. They met at Rutgers. Helen was really interesting. She helps James save money, and they end up becoming almost like this kind of power couple in saving money. And by 1857, Bradley was able to have his own small factory of brushes. It is literally luck that strikes again with the advent of the Civil War. And Helen really goes on to help him out throughout most of his time in the factory, as well as the founding of Asbury Park. It was uh, funny. She passes before James does, and uh, newspapers... Asbury Park press clippings at the time referred to Helen as the first lady of Asbury Park. There's another great clipping that talks about how rough rough men and mechanics and workers here in town thought of her as a goddess. Helen ends up summering here in Asbury Park once the town is founded. She will summer here with James and then she'll return back to New York City. She lives basically uh, at the St. Denis Hotel and she does a lot of great things, Bowery mission work, Salvation Army work. And she also, like I said, helps James out in the founding of Asbury Park and really keeping this place afloat and making it the place to be in the summer. So this brush factory. So brush factory work is very hard very hot work. And it's in a very cramped space. Um, If you know anything about brush factories, which I don't know if in 2023 we do, it's hog bristle and glue that makes a brush. Animal hair has to be washed by hand, dried, bleached, and sorted. And a good brush maker could make between six to eight dozen brushes a day. But that doesn't mean that your business is going to be ultimately successful. And so it's really that panic of 1857, the economic panic, as well as the advent of the Civil War, that really pushes James Bradley into being the brush daddy that he is, where he's able to get an income of over $400,000 a year producing these brushes. How he was able to do that was in 1857, there is a financial panic. And of course, the whole nation is in an uproar. The good part about this panic was that the call loans that Bradley had out against his business were never recalled back. By the time that the Civil War starts in the North, the North is going to protect their businesses and their uh, mercantile industries for themselves. So Bradley was in the market of making all sorts of brushes for cannons, um, for horses, to groom uniforms. You named it. He had a brush for it he really begins traveling in circles of new money. He, of course, wasn't old money of New York City that, you know, we're familiar with. If anybody's watching The Gilded Age, right? He is no uh, Carolina Astor. But he certainly is in the realm of new money. And he was actually even able to purchase a new factory on Pearl Street and a home in Brooklyn. And it's when he becomes a resident of Brooklyn that he really begins Being active in the Methodist Church. He ends up being a superintendent of the Central Methodist Church in Williamsburg. And he ends up hearing Henry Ward Beecher talk about charity and things like that. Now, Beecher, interesting fellow, is a Methodist preacher. He is also the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Harriet Beecher Stowe was a famous female author that wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, that supposedly. Abraham Lincoln has that famous quote, right? That she was the little lady that started the Civil War, talks all about enslavement in the South. But by 1870, our brush daddy, founder Bradley, is middle aged. His career is going well, his religion is saving him. He's seen the light, but he is physically exhausted and he just is unsure of what he is going to do. And it's by happenstance, there's that, there's that return to quote, 10% push, 90% accident, right? He learns about the Jersey Shore from a Methodist friend who was settling in the nearby town of Ocean Grove. And he meets this friend on the street. The friend tells him about the beautiful wilderness that is here in New Jersey. Could you imagine it to this day? I can't. Must have been great. The Methodist friend tells James that he should buy some plots. On June 9th of 1870... Bradley does just that. He comes down to the Jersey Shore area with his um, colored servant, as he refers to him as, uh, John Baker. They end up in a beautiful scene uh, taking a steamer over to Red Bank, New Jersey. Bradley has a meal at the Globe Hotel. The minute that he sits down at the Globe and sees the coastline of the Jersey Shore, what he perceives it to be in in the background and, and the bay and The area. He says that he has a sense of freedom and satisfaction that wash over him. He takes Baker, and by dusk, they had kind of set up a ramshackle tent with their horses and their carriage. And Bradley encourages Baker to take a little bit of a skinny dip uh, into the Atlantic. Now, they don't actually skinny dip, but they do lay in the sand, kind of basking in the ocean's waves together, thinking about just how wonderful this place would be to settle. The next morning, they pitch a tent. For those of you that know uh, Asbury Park, you'll know that there is a little stretch of land next to Sunset Lake in Asbury known as Robinson Caruso Island. And it's Bradley that gives it that name because he truly believes that this area is going to be a great place of wilderness, refuge, of peace, of tranquility. And so he names that little plot of land in Sunset Lake, on Sunset Lake. Robinson Crusoe Island in trying to find investors to buy into this right by this time the Jersey Shore was known by other groups of people the Goulds were coming here Um, there were also the Guggenheims that were summering except instead of coming all the way down to Asbury they were going to Long Branch which they had affectionately named the branch Fisk Gould Grant the president Ulysses S. Grant even summered there the branch is actually the place to go Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln even stays for a summer by the cool Atlantic to get out of the sweltering heat of Washington, D.C. So... Bradley realizes that if he's going to do this, if he's going to make this push, he's going to have to do it on his own. He ends up borrowing $90,000 against his business and his home to buy the 500 acres of scrub oaks that make up Asbury Park. His dream is that it is going to be a wholesome, moral community that would also attract tourists. I think he did a pretty good job because it is still attracting tourists to this day. Now, Wholesome Moral Community, I think that went out the window the minute that pharmacists had figured out the way to get around Asbury's um, no alcohol law. And that was back as early as the 1880s. But the cool part about Asbury is compared to other shore towns, if you come here, even take a look at Asbury compared to uh, Wanamasa, Deal, Ocean Grove, et cetera, is that when Bradley sets up the design. He sets up that Main Street will run from lake to lake and that it becomes a large cross section of grids. What's interesting is as you come down all of these streets in Asbury, they end up becoming wider by the ocean to see the view. He really wanted the people that came here to vacation, whether they were day trippers or whether they were extended stayers, to have this unobstructed, beautiful view of the ocean. The streets were designed so that they would be wider by the ocean so that you would get that unobstructed view. He ends up creating a promenade by the beach, which is now our beautiful boardwalk. And he ends up naming some of the streets that you're familiar with after his favorite Methodists. So Kingsley uh, was a Methodist bishop. Heck Street here in town was a pre-Revolutionary War Methodist family. Webb was an elderly minister. And Cookman was a minister that helped to purchase Ocean Grove. So it seems like everything is going swimmingly. And if you think about it, if we fast forward to the mid-1880s, by that time, just a mere 10 years or 15 years after Bradley's founding, we have in Asbury Park alone over 200 hotels and boarding houses and 3,000 year-round residents. And they were able to thrive because Bradley was really um, instrumental in establishing a sewage system here in town. He was a little paranoid about disease. He wanted to make sure that people came in here and that they were able to stay clean and healthy. And so he establishes really the first sewage system along the Jersey Shore. Then we also see that shops begin getting themselves established like Steinbach's, which is now... Um, Apartments on the top, and there are stores like Lola's European Cafe on the bottom. That was originally known as the Ocean Palace, and the Ocean Palace actually had the first escalator. The beach was, of course, a draw because of that invigorating salt water. And by the 1880s, people were writing a lot about how the ladies of Asbury would bathe on those beaches as beauties with a full face of makeup, bleached yellow hair, and v neck dresses. Now, the funny part is, the wilder that Asbury Park got, yes, that was wild for the 1880s, a V-neck dress, the more staunch Bradley became. So Bradley was known to go on patrol throughout town. He would break up couples that were attempting to spoon or perhaps lay a little bit too close to each other on the shoreline for shame. He even was instrumental in having the beaches of Asbury closed on a Sunday, at 8 a.m., and all barbershops were locked down by 10.30 on a Sunday. He controlled all aspects of the early buildings here in Asbury. So whether you're looking at the Paramount Theater and Convention Hall, all the way down to the casino, he was instrumental in that. And that's probably because, as was reported in newspapers, all aspects of buildings were controlled by him. He had no lunch. He was an apple eater. And on days when there was a celebration, he would have himself two apples for lunch. He was truly remembered in legacies uh, in his memorialization as a town hero. Um, And there are all sorts of these uh, wonderful euphemisms about Bradley that um, he saved two people that were drowning in the surf off of 7th Avenue. He was a novice writer. He wrote a little kind of poem short story known as Queen City. He loved molasses candy. And uh, he was instrumental in handing out rulers. Like I said, those rulers had directions about Asbury Park and why it was so special. And of course, he was a staunch advocate of prohibition. He did not want any liquor into into his town at all or gambling for that matter. That brings me to his two arrests. He was arrested in uh, the 1880s for two counts, so twice, of criminal libel. One was for his writings about uh, a gentleman on the railroad who he claimed only got his job thanks to his daddy. And the other, which was my favorite, <laughs> was that, uh, that he referred to pharmacist D.R. Reed as a rascal. And his drugstore was a rum shop in disguise. The other cool stories that I just love about Bradley is that as he aged... He and his wife would often go back up to, uh, they lived in, uh, she lived in the Saint-Denis and he lived in another hotel in New York City after she passed away. Uh, They lived in the Saint-Denis and then they lived in the Hotel Grand. They were both off of Broadway. One was off of 11th, that was the Saint-Denis, and then the Grand was off of 31st. But as late as 1916, so now think about this, founder Bradley was 83 years young. And he would still come down to summer in Asbury Park to see the progress of the town, how it was going, etc., cetera, so on and so forth. He finds out that there is gambling being had on Ocean Avenue. And with that being said, he finds himself an axe and he literally chops the gambling game in half swings and does not miss. Um, and eventually <laughs> uh, they end up getting rid of the gambling game. They were a little bit afraid of uh, what Brush Daddy Bradley was going to do to them. He was also really just a big proponent of New Jersey tourism. Um, one of the craziest things that I think about is when you come to the boardwalk in Asbury today and you're walking down from Convention Hall, which was designed by Warren and Wetmore uh, Grand Central Terminal uh, in New York City. They also designed beautifully architecturally put together all the way down to the casino. You know, you're, you're passing by these little shops and stores and, you know, there's the pinball um uh, the Silver Pinball Arcade. There's a bunch of different restaurants and things like that. But if we were here in Bradley's day, those would all be gone. And instead, what you would see on the beaches as well as on the boardwalk, would have been random items that Bradley had found in his escapades throughout New York City and, and the likes, and even some live animals that would have been here up until the wintertime when Bradley would dispose of them and bring them back to the zoos and things like that. But he was really the architect of the beach. We had a Roman tub that was huge, that was somewhere located along the beach. There were old boats that children were allowed to play in and things like that. So he really is just a true uh, founding gem here in town. Eventually, Bradley becomes too old to come down to the shore. He was battling face cancer He had bladder issues and he was 91 and he very sadly passes away just a month or two before the unveiling of his heroic statue in Atlantic Square, which they were the town was intending to be a memorial park in 1921. The cool part is the statue still stands. It's obviously uh, in front of Convention Hall if you are on Kingsley and you can take a look at uh, Bradley with his bowler hat and also clenching one of his very famous rulers. Statue cost about seventeen thousand dollars to be built and it was designed by Giuseppe Moretti. Uh, he designs the brass statue and it's really cool. The next time you're in Asbury, come and check this out. There are four panels at the base and each depict Asbury Park's founding. One talks about Ocean Grove and it shows you Baker and Bradley in the wilderness with their horses and their temp pitched. I don't think that they're doing uh, skinny dipping, but they you can see both of them there. Uh, one is of the Asbury Avenue Pavilion. The other is of the post office in Main Street. And it kind of just shows you the beautiful way that the town has progressed up until the 20th century. Uh, Now, Bradley's passing was mourned by people here in Asbury uh, from all over the place. Um, And he was actually buried, not down here, but at Woodlawn Cemetery, which is one of the largest cemeteries in New York. The statue still stands. So if you come take a look at Atlantic Square, you'll be able to see James A. Bradley who I refer to as the brush daddy of Asbury Park, just goes to show you what a kind of interesting story a self-made brush manufacturer makes and turns a city... By the sea. Thanks for listening to our first episode of Heirloom Historical. If you want to read more about Bradley and the interesting history of Asbury Park, there are a couple of books that I would recommend, and I will link them in the description below. One of my favorite books on Asbury Park is by author Daniel Wolf, who I have seen in person. He's fabulous. It's called The Fourth of July, Asbury Park: A History of the Promised Land. If you're a Springsteen fan, you're going to get all of those references. Um, and the other books that I really love uh, is Asbury Park's Glory Days: The Story of an American resort by Helen Chantal Pike. And of course, there are other great works by my friend Joe Bilby, who writes a great little consolidated history of Asbury Park. I'm sure we'll be circling a background to that one. If we talk a little bit more about uh, Clarence Hetrick, the baby parade that was here, super interesting, uh, and other uh, instances. I'm Leslie Sharonbeck, Thanks for listening to Heirloom Historical. Join us next week when we're going to talk about the Wickedy witch of the Jersey Pines, one of my favorite, interesting folklore legends of Jersey.